You know, I probably don't say it enough, but it is just a huge encouragement to see you guys here uh, week after week. Uh, you know, it's, I feel like it's, it's not as easy to go to church as it used to be. You know, it's, it's no longer a matter of just kind of rolling out of bed on a Sunday morning and, and driving here. You got to sign up, you got to find your mask, you got to, you know. So it's a very, uh, it's just a big personal encouragement uh, to me every week to see uh, your partially covered faces here. <laughs> And uh, every week I feel like there's uh, different people that I'm seeing who I haven't seen since last March. So that's especially encouraging and um, welcome. It is a, it's just a huge blessing to get to gather together um, as, as a family of people bound by the Spirit to um, sit under the Word of God together and worship our King together. What a blessing. So welcome uh, to the question that we're going to be exploring today in light of the text before us as we're working our way through the Gospel of John is this, what is the significance of the burial of Jesus? That's it, it's kind of the big, the big question this morning. The text today that we're looking at is John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, just five verses. This is, I, I think this is the shortest chunk that we've looked at yet uh, in the Gospel of John. Actually, I think we did just the first three verses way back at the beginning of the book, back in September, but one of the shorter sections just five verses here, and all we see in this section today is the burial of Jesus. His body is removed from the cross in the first verse. It's laid to rest in the tomb in the, in the last verse. This whole section, it is nothing but a burial story. So why does it matter? Why are we going to take the whole sermon today to look at the burial of Jesus? I was talking to my um, friend and mentor, Russ Glessner, about this earlier this week when we were talking about this passage, and he said, you know, that in his 70 plus years as a Christian, and, you know, being in church every Sunday, often on Sunday nights as well, and, and Wednesday nights for him, you know, hearing literally thousands of Bible sermons, he said this Sunday, as he watches this online, this will be the first time that he has ever heard an entire sermon on the burial of Jesus. This is it. He expects it's, it'll be the last one he ever hears as well. So who knows? So, so why are we doing this? What, what purposes did, did John have in including this scene here in his gospel with the detail that he does? And, and what possible purpose or, or challenge could it have for us as people who are trying to follow Jesus today? So this is what we're exploring as, as, as we work through this. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump into the text. I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read the whole scene right now, starting at verse uh, 38. So you can follow along in your Bibles. It's John 19, 38 through 42. It's also uh, printed in your hand out there. I'm going to have it on the screen as well. So no excuse for not following along in the text. Here we go. Verse 38. After these things, these things there would be um, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, which Bruce just finished um, teaching us about last week. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, remember that, back in chapter 3, 
came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, maybe even more like an orchard, that that term could could be used. And in the garden, a a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. End of the chapter, end of scene. There are three layers of significance to this story that we're going to be, be looking at today. Three, three different purposes that I think John had in telling the story the way that he does right here, that he wants his readers to see. The first is this, it's to show us that once again, as he's been hitting this theme so hard, especially in the last few chapters, Jesus is king. What we're seeing here in these verses, this is nothing like you would normally see uh, for victims of, of crucifixion. In most cases, the dead bodies were left to hang on the cross for, for days, for, for weeks possibly, you know, as this big visual and uh, visceral warning not to mess with Rome. That was the purpose of crucifixion. They just wanted him to, I mean, imagine walking past uh, crucified bodies just on your way to the market and stuff. That would stick with you. Now, in this case, since Jesus was crucified right before a Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Passover, in fact, which is an extra special Sabbath, the Jews were highly incentivized to get the bodies of Jesus and the two criminals next to him off the crosses as quickly as they could to avoid uh, kind of defiling the whole city with ritual impurity. That's what would happen if those dead bodies were up there. It would kind of ruin the whole festival for everyone in their minds. It was the idea of the whole um, breaking the leg scene in, in the crucifixion right before this. You remember they're going around, they're kind of chopping, boom, hitting the legs of those guys to make them die faster. They didn't have to do that with Jesus. He was already dead. Uh, but that was so that they could hurry up and get the bodies off the cross and into the ground, probably in a common grave, not far from the crucifixion site. That's where they, you know, when they find remains of crucified victims, they're usually in mass graves, very shallow graves with kind of dirt over them where they would, all the bodies would just kind of be tossed willy-nilly in there, one on top of another, and then they could be dug up and torn at by wild dogs. That was kind of how it was described, what would happen to uh, victims of crucifixion. This is what probably would have happened to Jesus had not someone intervened. Enter Joseph of Arimathea, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he, Joseph, came and took away his body. A number of unusual things going on in this verse Right here, it's first, first that a, uh, a, a prominent member of the Jewish aristocracy, a member of the, the ruling council of the Jews, we're told uh, in the other gospels. Uh, so weird that a guy of that type of status would go and approach the Roman governor and ask for the corpse of a crucified criminal. I mean, remember the shame that was associated with, with crucifixion, the stigma of it. No, no one would want to be associated with that, let alone a, you know, a, a prominent, upstanding Jewish leader. But Joseph does this. Why? Because, John tells us, 
Joseph of Arimathea had become a disciple of Jesus. Here, disciple just meaning follower, someone who walks after, a learner of Jesus. That's what the word disciple means. But he had done this secretly for fear of the Jews. And we don't know when, we don't know the backstory of all of this, Joseph's backstory. But this is something that all four gospels underline that Joseph believed in Jesus. He had bought into his message. All four Gospels also underline the fact that Joseph was rich, influential. This is probably why he was able to uh, get that permission from Pilate uh, to, to get the body. Pilate was, you know, a man of some stature and, and, and power in the community. Probably even had a prior relationship with Pilate. Maybe Pilate even owed Joseph a few favors, you know, that's how kind of things work politically speaking, but whatever the reason, Pilate gives Joseph permission to do this, and Joseph along, you know, I, I should say, all this stuff that they describe Joseph and Nicodemus here doing, we assume they had kind of a whole retinue of servants with them. You know, they, they, that, 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 this stuff, this was a big chore they were doing, having to carry the body, 75 pounds of spices, so they probably had servants doing this uh, uh, along with them, and together, they all removed the body of Jesus from the cross. Enter another wealthy man onto the scene, Nicodemus, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And once again, I mean, this is just all highly unusual uh, for victims of crucifixion. That, that's a huge amount of spices right there. 75 pounds? Have you, have you ever gone like backpacking before and weighed your backpacking? Like, oh man, this thing's got to weigh like a million pounds. You weigh it's like 50 or something. 75 pounds is a, is a lot of weight. That's excessive. It's exorbitant. Extremely costly. This is, this is like a, just monetarily speaking, this is in line with that jar of uh, expensive perfume that Mary broke uh, on Jesus' feet earlier. It's just this, it's an extravagant show of honor and devotion for anybody, let alone someone who was crucified. The, the high priest Gamaliel, uh, when he died just a couple decades after this, was reported to have 85 pounds of spice burned at, at, at his funeral. And the historian who notes that notes it like with a note of awe, like that was so much spice. Well, uh, that, that's what Jesus is getting, uh, something in line with that right here. It is a kingly offering for a kingly figure. Same with the linen cloth that is used. That's also um, highly valuable. Remember the soldiers uh, casting lots and kind of bartering for Jesus' clothing in the scene right before this. Cloth was labor-intensive to make and, and, and valuable. Yet this is what Jesus is wrapped in, the burial cloths of a king. He is then laid in a new tomb where no one else had been laid. This is also a sign of dignity and, and honor and wealth, not the sort of thing, again, that happened to just... Victims of crucifixion, you know, typically it was the shallow, common grave. No, this, John is emphasizing right here with the way he tells the story, this is the burial of a king. It's really one of the, 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 king, the key points in all of this, the same point that we saw in Jesus' uh, trial before Pilate where he has wearing the, the purple robes the crown of thorns. It's the same point that we saw when he hung on the cross under that sign that um, designated him as the king of the Jews in all three common languages of the time, the king of the world, really. 
Jesus is king. And here he has given a burial in line with that status by those who believe that to be true. Jesus may have died like a criminal, but he is laid to rest like a king. That's what John wants us to see right here. So then the second purpose John has with the story of the burial, first to show us that Jesus is king, second, this whole story right here is preparation for the resurrection. He's setting the stage here. It's the way this story functions in the narrative. It's like a, a bridge between the two key events of the gospel, cross and tomb. It is the culmination of the crucifixion. It is the launching point for the resurrection. It is the uh, proof that Jesus is really and truly dead. It also gets us ready in the next passage to find Jesus really and truly alive. That's what John is prepping us for here. It's uh, the, the burial reversed, the uh, the tomb which is now being filled, then being empty. He's preparing us for that as readers. Like think of the, think of the stuff that John highlights in this narrative that's pointing forward. First, first the bit about the, the, the linen cloth and the spices. Yes, I mean, that definitely does show that Jesus is a king. He's, he's buried in high honor. But all these burial preparations also show to us that Jesus is really and truly dead. This, I mean, that's a lot of spices and a lot of cloth that, that we're talking about here, enough to smother you, you know, if you weren't dead already, let alone impossible for Jesus to get out of uh, in case he had somehow uh, swooned or fainted on the cross, as some critics would like to love you. That. Well, that's completely impossible in light of what's, what's shown right here. Jesus was dead. He was dead indeed and buried. This is all, this is all proof of that. Uh, that bit about the cloth right there. It's also going to set us up as readers for when we encounter that cloth again in the very next scene, this time without a body in it. It's one of the key details John points out when he discovers the empty tomb. Same with the detail uh, that John includes there about this being a new tomb with no one ever having been laid in it yet. Family tombs were really common at this time. Kind of, you know, your, your whole family would have this tomb. There'd be different little shelves in there. And as you guys died off, you would, everyone would get their own little spot in there. Eventually, you fill it up and you'll all be together with the big resurrection at the end of all time is kind of how the Jews uh, saw this working out. John makes it clear that Jesus was not laid in this kind of tomb. His, his body was the only one in there. There may have been other shelves you know, for other bodies to get in there uh, eventually, but right now it was empty. It was new, except for him, which means there'd be no mistaking um, his name, his remains for someone else's, right? So, you know, when Mary, when Mary comes and finds this tomb empty in the very next section, we can be assured there was no uh, mix-up. John makes clear that we notice that here. Jesus was the only body in there. Also notice that John is uh, specific here with the location of the tomb. It was close at hand to the site of crucifixion, which likewise, the site of crucifixion, as we know, was in a very prominent location, which everyone in the city would know about, near uh, the most prominent city in the world to the mind of the Jews. That's what Jerusalem was. These things did not happen in a corner, Paul will say later when he's talking about the events of Christ death and resurrection, meaning, meaning these are prominent public facts, historical facts. Christianity is not based on 
personal revelation and these private experiences. No, these are things that are open to be investigated, to be looked into. This was the, the Christian claim from the very beginning when the gospel was proclaimed. We're going to have a lot more about this uh, uh, next week as we work through this. But, but what we see here, none of these are things and details that you would put into a resurrection account if you were making up a myth out of thin air decades after the event, as some critics will claim uh, could be the case with these accounts we have in the Gospels. If that were the case, I'll tell you what, you would want to be as vague with the details and subjective as possible in your message. You know, you would have maybe Jesus, like say he was buried out in the wilderness somewhere at a location uh, nobody knows about, or, or maybe you would have just gone with the common unmarked grave sort, sort of thing, that you know, he was thrown in the pit, but then his body was gone. You, in any case, you would want it to be someplace that couldn't be visited or investigated or debunked, right? But John is so specific with all of these details here because he knows the resurrection really happened and investigation of the historical facts will lead not to it being debunked, but lead to belief. He's inviting that here. Again, much, much more on this next week, but I just don't want us to miss how John sets us up for that in this passage right here. In the account of Jesus' burial, John is preparing us for the resurrection. Third and final function of this account. So the first is to show Jesus as king. The second is to um, prepare us as readers for the resurrection. The third, and this is where it can get personal for each one of us as followers of Jesus today, is a call to discipleship. We see this primarily in the actions of Joseph and Nicodemus. So a little background for this. Earlier on in the gospel, back in chapter 12, John writes this cryptic statement. He says in verse 42 of chapter 12, nevertheless, Many even of the authorities believed in him. That's they believed in Jesus after hearing what he was teaching, seeing what he was doing in Jerusalem, all that. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, meaning they, did not, they were not open about their allegiance to Jesus so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Put out there meaning kicked out, ex, ex, excommunicated from the, the local synagogue and really kicked out of the Jewish community for all intents and purposes. That's how central you know, synagogue life was to communal life at this time. And notice that you know, the people that John's describing here, these, these aren't like social outsiders. These, these are religious insiders. These are uh, the, the uh, authorities, the aristocracy, people with power, position, prestige to lose. So they kept their belief in Jesus a secret. Until now. Because Joseph and Nicodemus, I think, are two of the kinds of followers that John has in mind in chapter 12. Think about it. Both are religious authorities, members of the Sanhedrin. Both had power and uh, position, prestige to lose. And both were interested in following Jesus. Think of, again, our first encounter with Nicodemus back in, in, in chapter 3. Do you remember when he comes to visit Jesus and, and hear more of what he has to say, kind of investigate more about his message he's intrigued by? It's at night, under the cover of darkness, where he could be incognito, possibly, 
You know, nobody sees that he's going to go talk to this rogue rabbi from Galilee and get that gossip machine in Jerusalem cranking like, wow, did you hear who Nicodemus was hobnobbing with the other night and whatever? No, so he goes at night, secretly. And then Joseph here in our text is uh, uh, described explicitly as a secret follower, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, John says. So these are two men cut out of the same cloth, so to speak. Two men who I think probably represent many others who are intrigued by the message of Jesus, who are impressed by his character and his his credibility, who are convinced even that he may be the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, but who, because of their vested positions, because of their social clout, are afraid to go all in and make their devotion to Jesus public. Until now. That's what's going on here. What what Joseph and Nicodemus do by asking for the body of Jesus from the Roman official, a bold, audacious request that took some courage, by then going to the public location of the crucifixion along with their group, group of servants and removing the body of Jesus from the cross, and again, in daylight they are doing this because they needed to get them down by sunset, right? By anointing him with expensive spices and by preparing this body for for burial, by laying Jesus in honor in a new and an unused tomb, this is their way of going public. Right here, this is their way of expressing their devotion to Jesus for for anyone to see who is there. I, I, I think this is John showing us that this is their way of finally stepping out into the light makes me think of the prediction that Jesus also made earlier back in chapter 12 when he said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, meaning his crucifixion, when the Son of Man is lifted up on that cross, I will draw all people to myself. Not all people meaning everyone, every individual, but all people meaning all kinds of people from every place, from every category. We are seeing this happening right here in our passage. Yes, the king has died, but the king is still at work. And even in his darkest hour, even in the lowest point of his popularity, the kingdom of Jesus is advancing and the king is drawing people to himself. So then the challenge of these two men, of Joseph and and Nicodemus, to us as readers is this, would you have buried Jesus? It's the question I think that John kind of wants to raise in the, in the back of the minds of his readers right here. Would you have done this? You know, remember, John is writing primarily to his fellow Jews, men and women who are part of synagogues, men and women who are part of a, you know, that same tight-knit cultural and religious community. Men and women who, like Joseph and Nicodemus, could have a lot to lose if they choose to publicly identify as followers of Jesus. So will they do it? Will they consider the cost and be open about their allegiance to Jesus, the King? Will you? Will I? You know, John uh, gives this brief 
but uh, cuttingly insightful diagnosis of those uh, secret believers back in, in chapter 12, those people who wanted to follow Jesus but were afraid of you know, getting kicked out of the synagogue. And in, in, in just the very next verse that follows, John tells us what is going on in those people's hearts and their minds that makes them so fearful, so hesitant to, to, to step out in the light. He says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Is this the problem for us? You know, everyone enjoys being admired. Everyone enjoys uh, being included, part of the group, feel like you're kind of part of the group. Everyone enjoys being esteemed, being liked. And I think, you know, we've gotten used to it as American Christians over the, the last few centuries that we can be followers of Jesus and be socially accepted. You know, that that's not seen as a social liability for us. Like, oh, you're a follower of Jesus? Well, that was generally seen as a good thing in decades past. We got used to the fact that we could have the glory that comes from man and the glory that comes from God. Kind of the best of both worlds sort of thing. But the winds have shifted in recent decades, as I'm sure you're aware. More and more often, that, that term Christian can carry with it a, a stigma of intolerance, oppression, even bigotry. So the, you know, the question becomes, will you still claim your allegiance to Jesus the King when it labels you, rightly or wrongly, as one of those people. When it leads not to glory, but to shame in the eyes of our culture. I think of an article that was written this last um, February in the British magazine, The Critic. It's not a Christian magazine, but had this article in it. The author was um, a young journalist in his 20s. His name's Harry Howard. And at this point, the point he had written this article, he had never um, stepped out publicly as, as a Christian before. Here's, here's what he writes. He says, My journey to faith began conventionally enough with my devout teenage atheism. I can't remember how I came to echo the opinions of my stridently non-believing father, but from the age of 14 until I was nearly 19, I was a fully signed-up atheist in the vein of Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins. He then goes on in the article to describe how uh, in his senior year of high school, he was in a class with a, a Muslim teacher and the students were begging him to present a philosophical argument for the existence of God. So the professor, the, the teacher, excuse me, grudgingly presents what's known as the Kalam cosmological argument, which is one of the philosophical arguments for the existence of God. And it just blew this kid's mind. How he had never heard anything like this before. As, as he puts it, I left that room with a profound feeling that atheism could not explain my and the universe's existence. Nor could it provide me or anyone else with any meaning of substance which would see me through life's challenges. It made me realize that a finite universe without an ultimate creator does not make any sense. I started to read. I read Francis Collins, The Language of God. 
And there he recounted his own conversion after reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. So I read that too. Afterwards, I felt I had changed morally and spiritually as if a door had been pushed ajar. So Howard goes on to describe how then he goes to college, so he's kind of away in a different environment. He then joins a church. He then gets baptized. So this is just uh, you know, a, a beautiful story of someone coming to faith in Jesus, right? How, a story of how uh, the king, even now, is still drawing all people to himself in beautiful ways. Maybe some of you have a similar story or know people who do. But the, the really striking part of, of, of Howard's story to me, the, the part that resonates when I think about Joseph and Nicodemus and the challenge to us as, as followers of Jesus today, is when Howard describes how difficult it has been for him to step out and make his faith public in his cultural context. Here's what he writes. He says, I finally came out as a Christian in my final year of university, both to myself and select friends and family. Even now, more than three years after changing my mind, I still mainly keep it to myself. Our hollowed out culture makes it very difficult to have any serious discussion about the subject. To this day, I still have not told my dad, and this was in February of just this last year. His assumptions about religion and Christianity, that it's based on an unreliable book, that Christians feel superior to non-believers, that the church is a malign force, mean that sadly I'm in the camp of believers who aren't stupid, so must instead be deluded. It's something I'd rather leave to an article like this, meaning I think that this article is his way of telling his dad. This you know, public piece shared many times in print and online with his real name attached to it. This is Howard's way of finally going public, finally stepping out into the light and bearing the stigma professionally, personally, even before his dad. So what gives someone this sort of courage to finally do that? What gives Joseph and Nicodemus the courage to finally step out the way they did after a long time of being secret? Where will you and I get the courage that we need to claim our identity as Christians when we might end up being mocked for that or, or excluded or suffer some very real social and personal consequences for our allegiance to King Jesus? Ultimately, where John points us to is a question of glory. Whose glory really matters? That's, that's it. You know, if the problem is, as John puts it there, that the secret followers of Jesus love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, then the solution clearly is in our hearts flipping that valuation around. This was the fundamental shift, I think, for Joseph and Nicodemus following the crucifixion of Jesus. When, when these men saw Jesus on the cross, what they saw in breathtaking clarity was the full unveiling of the Son of God's glory. That's what it is. John, all along in the gospel, has been saying that the hour of the cross is the hour of Jesus' glory. So when these two men... You know, again, part of the council, we're probably there for all this. When they saw Jesus struck on the mouth before the Jewish council, 
when they saw him mocked and beaten before the Roman governor, when they saw him scourged and nailed to a cross, lifted up for all the world to see in shame, what these men actually saw was a different kind of glory, a a different kind of king, a different depth of love for sinners that transformed them at their very core. And that transformation then gives them the courage to step out into light because they'd seen glory like they'd never seen it before. The king was drawing them to himself by that glory. Here's how Howard concludes his article. He asks, so why am I a Christian? The answer is that it convinced me. It scared me. It made me realize that my actions do have consequences, that you're never truly alone, that there is an ultimate meaning to existence rather than blind, pitiless indifference. I was convinced by the utterly profound story told in the Gospels. I came to understand that the basis of the moral framework of the West can be traced back to first century Palestine. I realized that everything which we believe about how we should treat others, about the moral equality of the individual, was all Christian in essence. We are swimming in waters colored by Jesus' message. And like fish, we don't know anything different and so struggle to see it. And ultimately, I believe the best explanation for why all of this is so is that the story is true. In other words, when you have seen the glory of King Jesus, true glory, There is no shame in this world that you will not gladly bear for his sake because you have come to see that he alone is worth it. Pray with me, please. Father, by your spirit, help us to see the glory of your son. Help us to see the beautiful mystery of the crucifixion. Your son dying in our place, bearing our sin, defeating the powers that hold us captive. Your son rising in glory and victory over death. Your son living even now in your glorious presence at your right hand where he will come one day, return to earth to set things to right and judge the living and the dead. This is glory beyond our comprehension, Lord. Father, may we catch just a glimpse of it And by your spirit, be transformed to be bold witnesses of that glory in every aspect of our lives. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, the King, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.